Please open your Bibles to Job, Job chapter 4. In your pew Bible, that's page 351. For those of you who don't know, Valor was born on when, Thursday, um, and it's uh, Richard and Susan's second great-grandchild, and he's been given a fitting name. <laughs> he's had to be a fighter ever since he was born. Uh, so we have a lot of children in this church, and a lot of them seem to be having trouble. And so we want to be especially prayerful uh, for all the children in our lives and in our church. And in fact, there are a lot of people having trouble. And I've said it before, <clears throat> I feel somewhat responsible because I started preaching Job. And Job is about, uh, it's about how we react in, in pain and suffering. And so I, I feel bad. <laughs> and I know that that's not true. Uh, maybe the Lord in his foreknowledge said, People, a lot of people are going to start going through difficult times. You'd better preach Job. That's a much more palatable way to think about it. But I do believe that everybody in this church that is going through difficulty is reacting well. Everybody here is sticking closer to God. They're, not, um, they're asking why. I'm sure they're asking why. And the whole book of Job is filled with why questions that never really get answered. Uh, and so what we find is that the answer is really never in the why. And I've said it before in this series, and I'll say it again several times. The why actually doesn't help. Knowing the why doesn't help. It really doesn't. Uh, even if Job knew exactly why everything uh, happened to him that, that happened to him, would he say, oh, yes, that's worth the sacrifice of my children? Nope. He wouldn't say that. So the why doesn't really help. It's only the who. The Lord is with me. The Lord... Uh, is beside me, and I'm going to stick with the Lord. Uh, and, and next week, I'm going to be preaching about a few statements of strong statements of faith and, uh, that Job uh, makes throughout this. And one of those statements, just to give you a little preview, is, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. That's how the King James Version puts it. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And there are certain, um, there are certain character qualities that people have that can be virtuous or not virtuous. And stubbornness and obstinance, uh, it's always, almost always bad. We almost always think of it as being bad, just bad. But in Job's case here, when he says, though he slay me, yet will I serve him, that is a stubborn faith. That is an obstinate faith. That is God, that is him saying, God, it feels like you're trying to move me off the rock. You're trying to move me off the firm foundation, but you're not gonna get rid of me that easily. And that's the kind of faith that I wanna have and that I hope you wanna have too. Let's pray and then let's get into our, uh, our passage. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Please, Lord, teach us. Teach us today. Holy Spirit, work in our minds, in our hearts. Show us things we never saw before. Teach us things we never knew before. And inspire us to greater acts of faith that we never were able to do before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you, if you were honest with me, would say, I'm opinionated? How many of you would say that? I'm opinionated. Okay. How many of you, if you were uh, honest with me, would say, I like to debate people and I like to win? We're getting into the biggest chunk of the book of Job. And look at it. Chapters 4 through 37, that's what I'm going to preach today. Not going to read it all to you. But chapters 4 through 37 is the story of four, five, 
opinionated people sitting around debating for I don't know how long. If you hit it hard, you might be able to, to read all of this out loud in one day, but it's just emotionally exhausting to read this section of the book, so I can't imagine how emotionally exhausting it would be to have these arguments. So let's say it's spread out over a few days. But it is one of the most epic arguments and debates in all of ancient literature. And nobody wins. Uh, in, uh, in the commentaries that I was reading on this, they were talking about how do you, how do you judge a debate winner, okay? And most of us, uh, if we're honest, we like to have a debate with somebody, but watching a debate, okay, especially watching a debate on TV or something like that, is awful, is awful. Um, I've turned them off. I've, I've looked at presidential debates for a while, and it's just like, ugh, I can't stand this. Just turn it off. Because why? Because in a debate, especially a debate like this, what do you really want? What do you, what's the real goal? What do you really want? You really want for the truth to win. You want the truth to come out. And when you're watching people debate who are really just debating to win, okay, and especially politicians, they're just debating to win, does the truth win out? Oftentimes it does not, okay? Oftentimes the truth is really never even mentioned, okay? What they're really looking for is the pithiest saying or the best soundbite or the best talking point, that's really all they're trying to get out there. Uh, something that can be used as a slogan. And then, of course, it often uh, descends into nothing but sarcasm, nothing but sarcasm, making fun of each other, and then, you know, just mudslinging. All right? That's what a debate at its worst turns into uh, each time. And you're about to see th four armchair theologians uh, sling mud at each other and throw the truth around and never actually hit it, never actually see what the truth is. And I'm going to throw them a bone and say, okay, it's okay. They didn't know what the truth was. They're debating something and nobody's, it's not that anybody's being dishonest. Everybody here, I think, in this whole section of the book, they're all being very honest with each other. But if, if a group of people are debating who don't know the truth, the truth will never come out. Never came out in their arguments. And these are his friends. These are a, a peer group of people who loved him, set aside everything that, they were, that was going on in their life to come and comfort their friend and talk to their friend. A couple of weeks ago, you remember that I, I talked about them and I praised them that they set their whole life aside to come from faraway lands and come together and meet with Job and sit in the ashes with him. And what did they say to him? Nothing. They just sat and wept with him in the ashes. They met him where he was and it was the best point in the story for them. They were doing the best they could, they could possibly do then. In today's passage, they're going to open their mouth and ruin it all. All the comfort that they ever gave Job, uh, ever uh, even partially gave Job, is about to go away. And this is chapter four, uh, verse two. Verse one, actually. Yeah, verse two, sorry. Here it is. This is our passage, and it's really only one verse today, okay? There are, I'm going to refer to several other verses in various translations, but here it is. Eliphaz the Temanite, Eliphaz the Temanite, and he's the first one to speak, and I feel like he says the most during all of this. Uh, he's the one that speaks first, and he says, 
Could you bear it if someone were to speak? Ah, but who could hold his tongue in such a situation? Now, last week, what we saw was Job opens his mouth, curses the day of his birth, curses the night he was conceived, and just wonders, why in the world could I not have uh, been stillborn? And at the end of it, what did he say? The, the, the three things that he did. Curse the, day of, the night of his conception, curse the day of his birth, and then third said, oh, I'm so jealous of dead people. That was how low he had gotten. That was how bad he feels. And all through this, his friends are listening to him say this more, sing this dirge, if you will, because it's all in poetry form. Say this mournful lament. And then finally, his friends are, are like, all right, I've, uh, I've heard enough. And one of them says, who could hold his tongue in such a situation? And I don't know, have you ever been in a situation where you said, I hear what you're saying, I see what you're doing, and I just can't keep it in anymore. I gotta say something. How many of you have ever been in a situation like that where you're like, I'm sorry, I normally am a civil person, I try to be kind, but uh, I, I can't he- handle this anymore. I've got to open my mouth, I've got to say something. You need to hear my opinion, all right? And I don't know if it helped in your situation or not. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I hope it did. In this situation, I'm not sure it's going to help that much. And in this debate, in all of this debate, um, there are going, there's going to be a sort of a, a presupposition, a background truth that everybody believes and accepts and never really challenges, okay? And here's what that sort of background belief is, is that God... Um, or the way to blessing is by righteousness. The way to blessing is by righteousness. That's it. That is this foundational truth that this entire debate is going to sort of be uh, founded upon and dance around, and that is just the the universal truth that they all expect and believe. And guess what? We expect and believe that too. If I live righteously, God will bless me. If I live righteously, God will bless me. I see it all through the Old Testament in, in various ways. I read all through it in, in Proverbs. And our previous uh, sermon series here was in Proverbs. And in Proverbs, what we call Proverbs is good old-fashioned wisdom. It's good old-fashioned wisdom. And what we mean by that is we say, all things being equal, these things are true. Okay. If you read the book of Proverbs as uh, sort of cause and effect things, cause and effect things, you'll say, well, this isn't true because I see exceptions to nearly every rule here. But I think we would all admit that most of the time, if you live righteously, less trouble will befall you, okay? Less trouble will befall you. If you, um, I mean, just, just think about the Ten Commandments, okay? If you don't kill anybody, you're not gonna go to prison for killing anybody, most of the time. There are people who are wrongly imprisoned, okay? But if you don't get involved in anything, any kind of violent crime, more than likely you'll never go to prison for violent crime. If you never commit adultery, if you never commit adultery, more than likely your wife will not leave you and take half your stuff or more, okay? If you don't steal anything, you won't get in trouble for stealing anything. Don't we all believe this? All right? If you never lie, you'll never have to come back and explain yourself. And if you can control your heart and not covet and want everything that everybody else has, then guess what? You'll probably be more financially stable, okay? Righteous living leads to blessing. It's logical. It's logical. And all four of these guys who are sitting around here talking believe that firmly. If I live righteously, God will bless me. If I live righteously, God will bless me, okay? And then there are these other presuppositions, God is just, of this there can be no doubt. 
Nobody doubts that. Do you doubt that? God is just. God judges rightly. God is just. You don't doubt that. I don't doubt that, do you? Come on, everybody knows that. God punishes the wicked and blesses the upright. Well, that's true. At least ultimately and for eternity. That is absolutely true. In our world, what do we observe? It's true most of the time. 51% of the time. Probably more than that. Okay? But there are glaring exceptions to the case. And they're, they're going to debate some of that. Since God, But they believe this completely. Since God punishes the wicked and Job is obviously under punishment, then Job must be guilty, all right? That's, that's going to be the thing that they're debating this entire time, okay? And then if Job is innocent, and Job's going to be proclaiming his innocence throughout the entire argument. If he is innocent, then is God just? And it's this argument of what, 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 what of these presuppositions here are true? We, we have always believed these things, or this first couple of things here, but... We're now in a situation, I'm giving you a case study where these things don't work out logically. What am I supposed to do? Okay? All right. So let's begin. Uh, well, no, no. Oh, excuse me. So if, here, here's the other thing that you'll see. If you see a wicked person being blessed, okay? And you'll see th this tone sort of throughout a lot of their argument. So if you see a wicked person being blessed, okay? Think of the people in your mind that you know that they're bad, they're corrupt, they're no good, but they're well off and, 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 uh, and, and doing what they seem blessed in the world. So if you, if you see that kind of a person, what you're really saying in the back of your mind is, oh, you just wait, your doom is sure. You're gonna get yours, okay? And you've probably thought that, haven't you? All right, we got somebody over here giggling because it hit home, okay? But haven't you ever seen somebody that you say, uh, I don't know about that person? And, uh, and, and, then, and there have been times that they got caught and you're like, yes. We never want to think that we're vindictive like that, do we? But we are. If you see a righteous person being afflicted, you say, well, I guess he wasn't as righteous as we all thought. Last year, in the last year, there have been two or three ministers. And the, the, you know, the scandal in the Catholic Church has been going on for 15, 20 years now. But uh, it's starting to hit home in the Protestant church now, too. It's not always sexual abuse, but it, some of it is. But a lot of it is financial abuse. And there was a, church, uh, a yeah, big church in the Chicago area where their pastor got fired because he was being a royal jerk. Abusive leadership. So much so that just everybody around him, all his elder team, they were all just yes men. He had run off anybody with a spine long before, long ago. But all of this stuff was being exposed. And what you see then uh, you see him being afflicted. You see him being ousted. Uh, and, and, of course, I'm talking about people who are truly guilty. But every once in a while, you'll see somebody who's righteous. And, and especially Job's friends are going to believe this way. I guess he wasn't as righteous as we all thought. All right? All right. Are you with me still? Here's the pattern that the argument is going to take. Job's friend is going to make an assertion about God's justice and then make an accusation against Job's righteousness. Because they believe God is just, you are afflicted, God is obviously punishing you. God is obviously punishing you. They're going to make that assertion. And then Job is going to react to that friend's assertion. And he's going to say, no, 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 it's not true, it's not true. And he's going to then, almost always, going to also complain to God. He's going to say, no, it's wrong. Do you hear what they're saying? And, and, and I can't get any justice with you. Why can I get it? Why won't you hear me? Da, 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 da. 
and he turns to God and he complains about uh, God and, uh, and God's justice in his life because it's just not working out. This, this shouldn't be true. And then he'll come back and, the, and Job's friend will then make a statement of disgust with Job and his views. Why are you sticking to your guns? Why do you continue to argue this point? All right? And let's look at a few verses that really illustrate all of that. This is in Eliphaz's first argument. Blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Those are great verses. Those are great verses. And here's the thing that, that when you're reading chapters 4 through 37 of Job, that you should always remember. All of this, everything that they say, <coughs> excuse me, is truth mixed with lies. Truth mixed, mixed with lies. Or let's not say lies. Let's say truth mixed with misunderstandings. Good theology mixed with uh, bad theology, mediocre theology, okay? And I'm going to show you how this is good theology and bad theology at the same time. Uh, blessed is the one whom God corrects. That's a New Testament idea too, that if I love you, I chasten you. If I love you, I discipline you. If I love you, uh, I will put you through the rigors because I want to make you strong, all right? And, and it's not punishment. It's not punishment. Even you give your children challenges, all right? Claire is just starting to crawl. And so what do we do? We take the toys and put them a little further away so that she'll crawl to it. How cruel, how cruel we are to her. But you all laugh because you know that what we're trying to do is help her. We're not trying to take a toy away from her. We're trying to get her stronger. God is trying to get you stronger. Difficulty Challenges will come into your life because God is trying to make you stronger. He doesn't want you to be a spiritual weakling. He's bringing all of those things in your life for that purpose. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm very sorry. <clears throat> so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. So if you have sin in your life, guess what? There's a little difference between um, God giving us a challenge. Now, so Claire, she can't crawl yet. She's not very good at crawling yet. Is that a sin? Obviously not. Obviously not, but I do want her to get stronger because an immobile person is not going to have much advantage in life, right? Okay? I got, I got to get her moving, even though I know that when she starts moving, then I have to be more careful around the house, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. But when they start disobeying, when children start disobeying, well, guess what? I have to start finding some way to do a different kind of discipline, a corrective discipline, and that's never comfortable, is it? That's never comfortable. I punish, I also hug. Yeah? I uh, put you in the corner, I put you in time out, I spank you. I also caress you and tell you I love you. And there's no hypocrisy there. There's no hypocrisy when God does that either. Okay? But I'm going to tell you where it's wrong. I'm going to tell you where it's misleading. I'm going to tell you where it's bad theology. He's saying this to Job. And he's saying, Job, don't despise God's punishment on you. Don't despise God's punishment on you. Thank you very much. Don't despise God's punishment on you. He's trying to make you more holy. Don't despise God's punishment on you. What's wrong with that? He's assuming Job has sinned. He's assuming Job has sinned. He's assuming something about Job that's not true. It becomes bad theology when you tell somebody the difficulty in your life is because of sin in your life. And what we have at the beginning of the book of Job, remember, is what? God's glowing endorsement of Job. Job is righteous. None of what he's going through is because of sin in his life. 
So there's good theology mixed with bad theology here. And whenever you go through difficulty or anything like that, you're going to hear good theology mixed with bad theology. You just ask anybody here who's gone through something difficult and had very nice, well-meaning Christians come up and tell them and say to them the most awful things. They had very good intentions. They had very good intentions. But their theology is way off. Way off. And you will get, those, those people, if you've heard that kind of a thing, you're going to get just as frustrated as Job. You're going to get just as frustrated as Job. <clears throat> and, th- and you'll say things like this, where Job says, teach me and I'll be quiet. Show me where I've been wrong. So he says to Eliphaz, hey, you're telling me that all this is punishment because of the sin in my life. I want you to show me the sin in my life. What's going on? I, I have no idea. I'm innocent. I proclaim my innocence all day long. If you can see the sin in my life, you point it out to me, Eliphaz. And Eliphaz, can't, he can't do it. He can't do it. And so his friends will also all come to him and say, no, 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 you must have some secret sin, some sin that we can't see but God can. And Job says, no, that's not it. That's not it. And then it gets nasty, and it gets really nasty uh, in, in this whole argument. Bildad's inflammatory assertion. Look at this. This is his other friend. These are friends. And he says, how long will you say such things? Such things like, I'm innocent. God's wrong in in punishing me this way, treating me this way. How long will you say such things like that? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Obviously not. None of us believe that. Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. And I don't know how he didn't come away with this with a broken jaw, without a broken jaw. Job's children have died, all 10 of them, and he says they deserved it. Inflammatory? Absolutely. I would have come, on down, come down on him like a ton of bricks. But that's how nasty it gets. Uh, the, the commentator I was, or the commenter, uh, I learned that commentator is not right. It's commenter. Okay? The commenter uh, recently said that this, this all goes from sort of discussion, but it escalates very quickly from discussion to debate to dispute. And we see, we see how, it, how it goes from one level to another here. And then Job comes back uh, and he says this, I'm innocent, but it makes no difference to me. I despise my life. And I don't know if you've ever been in such a low place where it's like, I know the truth. I know what's right. I know everything about it. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm innocent. So what? Everything's ruined. My guilt or my innocence hardly even matters to me now because my life is ruined. Even if somebody came back to me and said, I apologize, I'd like to make some kind of restitution. What kind of restitution could you make to somebody like Job? My life is ruined. It's all over. And he gives his true complaint. And I think most of us would have this true complaint at some point when you're when you're uh, obviously going through some kind of difficult time and you pray, you react the way a Christian ought to react. You're doing what a Christian ought to do, uh, but you're not getting a response. You're not hearing anything. Even You even say, okay, Lord, I believe that you're going to work good in my life out of this. I believe that you're with me through this. I believe that you're making me into a better disciple this way. Please tell me a little bit more how or why or something, and you get nothing but silence. And that's what Job got. I'm disgusted with my life. Let me freely complain. My Bitter soul must complain. I will say to God, don't simply condemn me. Tell me the charge you're bringing against me. If I'm being punished, okay, let's say that they're right. I'm being punished. You've got to tell me why. 
You've got to tell me what for. If you're disciplining me, if you're trying to make me a stronger person, I don't even see what all this is about. What it really reminds me of here is uh, there's a horse trainer named Chris Cox. Have you ever heard of him? Uh, in cowboy country, he's a, he's a celebrity. And he can take horses. Horses never seen a human, never touched, been touched by a human, nothing. And in like 15 minutes, he's riding them. He's, he's one of those horse whisperers, okay? And he teaches them the most amazing things. And this dawned on me one day when, he was taught, when, he, when he's training these horses. The horses have no idea why, all right? Uh, and he trains, he trains all kinds of horses, but um, there, there are horses that sort of do, you know, they, they kind of ride over obstacles and things like that. The horse has absolutely no idea to what end, okay? Or how about this, cowboy's horses. Um, there's something called a cutting horse where you have this big group of cows, right? And you need to select one out of the herd. So you go in there with your horse and you get that one and you, you take it out and then you don't let it go back with the rest of the herd. And these horses are really good and they're very quick. Uh, and and they're, they're difficult to ride even, but they're very good at cutting this one out and, 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 and shooing it away to, to get it over here to doctor it or whatever, okay? The horse has absolutely no idea why it does any of this, okay? It has no idea that there's a beef industry and that they're a part of it, okay? They have no idea that they're doing this for competition and that their owner is going to get lots of money for it. They have no idea. that They just do it. They do it because the master has told them to do it. They do it because the master has trained them to do it. And then eventually, they really enjoy it. You can tell these horses enjoy what they're doing, okay? They're doing something amazing. And if you ask them, horse, why are you doing this? Why are you jumping? Why are you going over these things? Why are you cutting this cow out of the herd? The horse would say, what do you mean, why? I have no idea why. What, what do you mean, the ultimate end? This isn't the ultimate end of it? They have absolutely no idea why. But they've been trained to do something well. Uh, and and when, when the training all starts, this horse is just, it, it's sort of traumatic for them. But they have no idea the end glory. Because a wild horse, wild horse has its own glory, but if you're trying to use it or something like that, a cantankerous horse, there's no glory in a cantankerous horse. But a horse that's well-trained, you look at them and you say, wow, that's amazing. My dad saw this guy live in person at this training clinic, okay? And, I, and this is a little off sub subject, but let me tell you the, the glory of Chris Cox, okay? Not the glory of God, the glory of Chris Cox, this horse trainer. My dad, there were a whole bunch of people down there asking him questions. This is after the event was over, and his horse was just standing over here. But he was a little bit out too much in the crowd. And so this is what the horse trainer did. He looked over his horse and he got the horse's attention. The horse looked at him and he parallel parked his horse from afar. What? He had his horse. He trained his horse with hand signals to sidestep and get over by the fence. Amazing. And that wasn't even part of the clinic, Okay. That's the most impressive thing I've ever heard. You taught your horse to parallel park. And this is his, his one special horse that he has had for so many years that he has trained so well. When, those, when any horse that he handles starts out, it's nothing but trauma because they have absolutely no idea what the end result will be of the training on them. But they will eventually become an incredible animal Whereas they, they, they might have been worth nothing at the beginning. In the end, they were, are worth tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And everybody will go pay tickets to watch them do what they do. Okay? 
um, <clears throat> with you in your life, with me in my life, there have been many times where I was going through some kind of discipline. God was moving in me, and he didn't tell me why. There's been only maybe one time in my life when God was putting me through something, and I knew why. Every other time, God was putting me through something, making me endure something, wanting me to make better decisions in some way, and I was resisting it because I don't see the end result of why. And so I resist, and I resist, and I resist. Until finally, all right, I give in. I'll do it this way, even though I don't see why. And then after I do it his way, I say, oh, now I see why. Now I see why that's a better way to do it. That's a better, better decision-making paradigm, or that's a better behavior, that's a better ethic. But it took a long time for that to happen. Chris Cox is a horse trainer. He is a higher intelligence and he's teaching a lower intelligence how to do something. And the lower intelligence really doesn't know what the end result will be or why. And here I am, and God, the higher intelligence, is trying to train me, the lower intelligence, what to do. And I resist it because I have no idea what the end result will be. But eventually, when I do see it or when I see what it, I can become, it's much better, Okay. Trust the higher intelligence is all I'm saying, even if he doesn't tell you exactly why. And then it, it, gets, uh, it gets even, uh, I wouldn't say worse here, but Zophar, the last friend, and he only speaks a couple of times. The other friends, they speak, say, three times uh, each. Then Zophar, the Naamathite, replied to Job, shouldn't someone answer this torrent of words? Is a person proved innocent just by a lot of talking? Uh, and... Of all the things that Zophar said, this is the one that jumps out at me. Because, I don't know, have you ever been around a master manipulator? Okay, There are some people who are master manipulators out there. And what they do, what they do, one of their tactics, there are a lot of tactics, but one of their tactics is, I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to keep arguing with you. Maybe my points aren't even that good, but I'm going to keep talking until I wear you down. And you're going to do what I want you to do, or else you won't get me to be quiet. And I feel like that's what Zophar is accusing Job of here. Oh, come on. You know we're right. Just stop talking. But Job won't stop talking. But who's trying to do the manipulating here? The three friends or Job? Who's the bigger manipulator here? Okay. And in the end, none of them really quiet Job down. Um, in the end, Job... After the three friends all kind of do their best, Job ends with a six-chapter rebuttal. And after that, they all just kind of like, Pfft. all right? Six chapters. Most of this arguing is all one chapter here, one chapter there, maybe a couple of chapters here, a couple of chapters there. But in the end, Job just lays it out. Six chapters of, of complaining. And it's all very nice and poetic. But at the end, those three friends just say, all right, that's it. I'm worn out. I can't do anymore. And Job, this is what he says in chapter 12. And this isn't where the, the six chapters even begin. This is really in the middle of it. You people really know everything, don't you? This is how he comes back to, to Zophar. And it's, it's sarcasm. Just read. The, it's dripping with sarcasm. You people really know everything, don't you? And when you die, wisdom will die with you. Well, I know a few things myself and you're no better than I am. Who doesn't know these things you've been saying? 
Yet my friends laugh at me, for I call on God and expect an answer. I am a just and blameless man, yet they laugh at me. After, after Job gives his six-chapter rebuttal, a young man comes up. Okay, So these all are middle-aged or older men uh, that are here arguing with Job. And there's a young man named Elihu. Elihu. And he only speaks once, but it's enough because he gives Job a six-chapter response to his six chapters. Okay? And his first chapter really is more is, is really just kind of sounds like this. With all due respect. That's, he basically spends one chapter saying, with all due respect. Okay? With all due respect to you older gentlemen. I let you do all the talking for a long time, but I'm ashamed of you all. With all due respect, I'm ashamed of you three men because you, should, you couldn't shut Job up. You couldn't win this debate. So I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I know that I'm just a kid. I know that I'm just youthful but I'm going to try my best. And so Elihu gives six chapters of a response to Job. And at the end, you know what? Job doesn't respond. And I don't know what that means. Uh, if, if the real tactic here is whoever gets the last word wins, then that means Elihu wins, sort of, okay? Because after Elihu stops talking, guess who starts talking? God. God shows up, and he, he basically says, all right, I've heard enough, and we're going to spend some time on that. That's a, a really a, a, different, a different sermon. But Elihu, he comes, in, he comes in with his truth mixed with misunderstandings, and he wins because Job doesn't answer, but he loses because after that, God comes in and answers. And he says, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but he but gives the afflicted their rights. And here we have the same exact thing. I was reading the commenter, because I kind of always felt like all my life that Elihu comes and he comes with the right statements. But the commenter I read said, he really doesn't say anything different. He comes in, he's young, uh, he's idealistic, but he really doesn't. He tells, hey, I'm ashamed of you guys. You guys couldn't win. You guys couldn't, uh, couldn't um, silence Job. And then he basically makes the exact same arguments. So what does it mean? Young, old, wise, uh, unschooled? It doesn't matter. Human logic has, human wisdom has its limits. And there's truth mixed with lies here. God is mighty. Is that truthful? Absolutely. Uh, God despises no one. Is that true? There's actually only one person in the Bible that God said he hated. Do you know who that was? Esau. Esau, okay? And I'd like to know more about that situation, Okay? Because the way I look at the Bible, I don't even think that Esau is the worst person in there. But okay, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's what he says, okay? So is that true? 99.99999% of the time. But I'm going to let God have enemies. And I'm going to let him be very frustrated and even hate the people uh, who are working terribly towards him. I've got to let him. He's the Lord of all anyway. He does not keep the wicked alive. Is that true? No. Plenty of wicked people out there living to a ripe old age, right? But he gives the afflicted their rights. Is that true? Not 100% of the time. A lot of afflicted people out there suffering unjustly. It happens. We all see that it happens, okay? All right. 
So let's talk a little bit about the debate. Let's talk a little bit about the debate. I used to debate a lot. Uh, I I, uh, became a Christian at age 13, and I just devoured huge portions of Scripture. I got to be very good. I got to be very knowledgeable, at least in the New Testament, for uh, a very long time. And then I, uh, I would discuss, of course, I want to discuss, and I would debate because I like to debate. And in the high school where I went, we didn't have rival gangs, but we did have rival youth groups. Okay, that's what it's like to grow up in the Bible Belt. You don't have Crips and Bloods, but you do have this church and that church and their youth groups. Okay, and we debated. We debated theology. If you can imagine that. And then we had a defection from our youth group to another youth group, and I thought we were going to have a rumble. We had to have one of the deacons come in and convince us that we were still right. All right. And then I went to college, and I went to a denominational school. And uh, there, there wasn't so much debating. We just fortified our presuppositions. That's what you do at denominational schools. And then I went to do ministry overseas with a non-denominational ministry. And guess who I ran into? People who disagreed with me again, okay? And so what did I do? I picked fights. I picked fights. The only virtue I had in it all is that I really did want to know the truth. If my theology is wrong, I do want to know. I want the truth to win. And that's good because I lost a lot of debates, okay? And it led to some, I'm not kidding you, nights where I didn't sleep because I was debating theology in my head, asking questions that can't be answered, okay? And in the end, what did it lead to? I stopped arguing. I stopped debating. I I was silenced. And I got a much better balanced theology out of it. And so I don't know about you. I don't know where you're at and how much you like to debate. Uh, I hope that you're in the word enough that you start to understand God and have opinions about doctrine. I hope you understand doctrine well enough that when you hear bad doctrine, red flag comes up. And I hope that you love people enough that you want to engage with them, not keep your faith to yourself, not keep your Bible understanding to yourself, but you want to engage them with the truth. But I also, and I hope that if you lose an argument sometime, that you won't just quit. Don't quit. Keep reading the Bible. Keep understanding. Keep letting your theology get more and more balanced out. It's a process, and you have to go through it. But I hope that you're not picking fights just to win. And I hope that you never argue a point that you don't agree with just because you know you'll win. I hope that you will always want the truth to win, even if you've got a very good sarcastic comeback or a very pithy saying or a nice sound bite, even if you've got that, but you know in your heart it's not true, you just stop. You just stop. And you say, hmm, that's a good point. Let me think about that. Because it's not school debate. There's not a a bell or anything at the end. We're not scoring points. There's a branch of Christianity, a branch of sort of theology called apologetics. How many of you love apologetics? You know what it is and you you love it. What it is is when great thinkers uh, take the truth of Scripture and apply it to our society or, or push back against society's bad doctrines, and it's very, very necessary. And I hope that we will all um, be fairly good students of apologetics. But 
You can use apologetics as a weapon. Okay? Remember, we're trying to win the world for Christ, not make them look and feel like idiots. We're not trying to win the debate. We're trying to win souls here. Okay? And so this is what I'll say. Learn your apologetics, but know its limits. And, and I'll say this. Use it properly, and here's what I mean when I say properly. You will not win people to Christ by talking about Darwin for hours and hours. You see what I'm saying? If you want to win people to Christ, talk about Jesus for hours and hours and hours. If you want, to hear, if you want them to embrace Jesus, then show them Jesus. Okay? If they've embraced Darwin, or they, not even Darwin, just, just uh, atheism in general. And I, I, anyway, whatever they've embraced, don't just talk about that until they've not embraced it. Because most people will not let go of a worldview until they have another one to cling to. Because if you've lost a worldview and not gained one, you're just falling. So show them Jesus. Show them Jesus. And when Jesus becomes more attractive than Darwin, and it won't take long, I don't think, they'll say, okay, I'm going to come over here. That's how it works. I was, when I was in China, the very first school I was at was a school full of very high scientific minds. I mean, they were much smarter than me. They were splitting atoms over there, okay? And of the people that I was really able to share the gospel with, those who became Christians, I, I shared the gospel with a lot of people, and I did some apologetics with a lot of people, with ah, really maybe just a few the ones who really embraced science or wanted to debate science, they weren't so much interested in Jesus. And I never really won anybody to Christ by talking about science, by attacking science. And the ones who did come to Christ, it never came.